Lord Jesus, we sometimes feel like those to whom you once said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. But just as you opened the minds of those two sad people, sad because they thought you were dead and didn't realize that you are alive, just as you opened their minds, so open our minds, we pray, so that we can understand the scriptures. May we be witnesses of these things, bringers of glad tidings. Amen. Beautiful feet. When I was uh, a lad growing up in the middle of the last century, and that's true, frightening but true, um, we, <laughs> we had a book in our household called 1,000 Beautiful Things. It was an anthology of poems and uh, quotations and stories. I don't recall any one of those 1,000 Beautiful Things being about feet. I, I wonder if I would ask, uh, were to ask you what your perhaps just five or ten uh, most beautiful things might be. You might mention uh, beautiful scenery, um, the fleeting glory of a sunset, or the more steady splendor of mountain scenery, perhaps. Or your idea of a beautiful thing might be, indeed, uh, a piece of poetry, or something musical, uh, a wonderful melody, or just the sound of a particular voice or instrument. Or perhaps your idea of beauty is the face or the smile of someone that you love. Whatever is on your list of beautiful things, I don't suppose feet would feature very high on that list. But for some reason they did for the prophet. If you'll turn with me, or perhaps you've still got your Bible open, at Isaiah chapter 52 and the first 12 verses, that's page 739 in the church Bibles. You will recall, and that's probably really new because it's a very well-known passage, isn't it, that the prophet is speaking of beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. In fact, um, if you have been attending Sunday evening services uh, regularly, uh, then you will realize, because you've been, we've seen it many times in these chapters of Isaiah, that the prophet is addressing uh, the people of God from the tribe of uh, Judah uh, who are in exile in Babylon. And the prophet, amongst other things, have been looking forward to their release from their exile. And the prophet now, in this chapter, and in these middle verses, seven and following, is picturing a scene back in Zion, back in Jerusalem. He's picturing a sentry, a a lookout on those ruined walls of Jerusalem, who's been looking and waiting and scanning the horizon. And after many years of waiting and nothing, he now hears the, some, uh, of, uh, some running feet. And he begins to hear the news that this messenger brings. News that your God reigns. And there's part of that picture too. 
um, the, the prophet uh, sees even the ruins themselves rising up in praise and rejoicing to the God who now, with his people, is leading his people back to the holy city. In fact, verses 7, 8, and 9 of this chapter are uh, a preacher's delight. I'm actually going to take them in reverse order, just for slight convenience, by noticing that in verse 9, uh, the prophet tells of a redeeming saviour, and in verse 8, of the returning Lord, and in verse 7, of the reigning king. So three aspects to this good news that the prophet is seeing and declaring to those exiles over there in Babylon. A redeeming saviour, a returning lord, and a reigning king. The battle then has been won in this vision. The long years of captivity are drawing to a close. The holy city and its temple will rise from their ruins, and peace and joy and plenty will be enjoyed across the land once again. After 70 years, two generations really, of exile, where almost all of those of God's people now living in Babylon would never have known their homeland, would never have known Jerusalem, never been there. The particular question I want to ask uh, this evening and focus on in the time available to me is when and how was this fulfilled? And there are two sort of obvious answers to when and how this prediction of return of the exiles was fulfilled. The first answer is, well, it was fulfilled, wasn't it, following the decree of Cyrus in the year 539 BC. You may realize that the name of Cyrus has already been mentioned two or three times in preceding chapters of Isaiah. And Cyrus was the new king on the block, block, a powerful but really rather kindly ruler, uh, ruler of Persia. And uh, Babylon would give in to Cyrus and Persia almost without a fight. And Cyrus would allow, permit the exiles to return to their homeland. So we can say that following the decree of Cyrus in 539 and the beginnings of the return of the exiles back to the the holy city and to the homeland, that this happy prediction was fulfilled. But I said I had two answers to the question, and I want to put it to you that that answer to the question, how and when was this fulfilled, is, is incomplete. It's only partial Yes, exiles did return, not in huge numbers, but in significant numbers. But the later writings of the Old Testament tell us that there was still um, an incompleteness to all of that. You know that the story of Nehemiah, which comes later than these chapters of Isaiah chronologically, uh, tells the story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and so on. But in Nehemiah chapter 9 tells us that uh, we are told that the return of the exiles was not all that they had, had hoped it would be. Nehemiah 9 and verse 36 has this uh, plea from the people of God. We are still slaves today, slaves in the land you gave to our forefathers. They had returned home to the holy city, 
but they still, but they were still ruled by other people, and they still felt as they were slaves in their own land. And in so many other ways, the later prophets are still looking forward to something bigger and better and more complete. And by the time the New Testament opens, there is still that strong sense of, we're still waiting. Do you remember the lovely story, uh, stories that took place uh, when Jesus, eight days old, newborn uh, uh, baby Jesus, was taken to the temple in Jerusalem to be, uh, to be circumcised? And we meet two godly people there. Well, the name of one is Simeon, and the name of the other is Anna. And what they said and did is recorded in Luke chapter 2. And we read that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that Anna uh, uh, and others that she was speaking to were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Still waiting. And it was given to those godly people, Simeon and Anna, to recognize in that small child, that baby Jesus that God was now really visiting his people and bringing salvation. So there's our second answer to the question, when and how was this prediction of the return of the exiles and a redeeming saviour, a returning lord, and a reigning king fulfilled? Filled in a preliminary way with the return of the exiles in 539 BC and the years following but in a fuller way by the one who was yet to come. So just as the answer to everything this morning in Colossians was, it may look like a squirrel, but it's really Jesus. Sorry, you have to be here this morning to understand that allusion. So the answer here is, yes, uh, we're in church on Sunday evening. The answer still has to be Jesus. But I want to explain to you, because you were expecting that answer, weren't you? You knew the answer was going to be Jesus, I want to explain to you how we get to that answer. I want to just try to spend a few minutes piecing together what the Old and New Testament says. Old Testament, I promise and prediction. New Testament, by fulfilment. Uh, to show that we do indeed in Jesus have the redeeming Saviour, the returning Lord, and the reigning King in a bigger and better and more glorious way than those returning exiles can ever have known. The redeeming saviour. Is Jesus the redeeming saviour? Do you remember the story in Acts chapter 8 of the high-ranking official from Ethiopia, usually referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch? He's there in his chariot reading from Isaiah, the very next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Philip, the Christian uh, is, uh, is, uh, wings his way, almost literally, uh, to the Ethiopian. Just as the Ethiopian is reading these words, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And the Ethiopian asks Philip, now who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Acts chapter 8 and verse 35 says this, Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself quoted 
from this very next chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53. The bit where it says he was numbered with the transgression, uh, with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he said, what is written about me here is reaching its fulfillment. So when Isaiah 52 talks about redemption without price, then the very next chapter will spell out in a wonderful way how God would redeem, uh, would, would achieve in his own son that redemption. Without price to us, because priceless uh, in the eyes of God. So yes, indeed, in Jesus we do have what is foreseen here in terms of a redeeming saviour. What about the returning Lord who is spoken about in verse 8 here, the returning Lord. Well, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, many years after these prophecies of Isaiah, has this in chapter 3 and verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, says the Lord Almighty. And that very scripture is quoted right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1 and verse 2. The messenger is John the, uh, John the Baptist. The Lord coming to his temple is Jesus himself. Or to put it a slightly different way, do you remember the beginning of John's gospel? which begins by saying in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. The word is God returning, coming to be amongst us and to be one of us. Yes, indeed, Jesus is the God who returns to his people to be with them as God incarnate. Can we truly say that Jesus is the reigning king, as we have it in chapter 52 and verse 7? Well, again, an Old Testament, a later Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 has this, another well-known scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and that will probably be read and referred to by many a reader and a preacher, because that scripture was fulfilled as Jesus, as a lowly but very real king, enters the holy city. Or again, put it in a slightly different way, Matthew's gospel, from beginning to end, will present Jesus as king, He begins with a genealogy, not a stuffy, boring old old genealogy, but a genealogy which is worth its weight in gold because it demonstrates, amongst other things, that Jesus is in the line and house of King David. But for other historical uh, circumstances, Jesus' father would have been King Joseph. And then Matthew's gospel finishes with those, with the, with the words of the Great Commission, when Jesus says, with all his kingly authority, 
All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So what was first addressed to the people of God, the Jews, and their holy city and their temple, has now, as it were, broken out of its mold and is addressed to all corners of the world, all of God's people everywhere. As Paul writes in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And then quoting Isaiah 52. As it is written, says Paul, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So then, if it was right for those first hearers of Isaiah's message to awaken, rejoice, and move into action, how much more for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, us for whom the good news has been set free from all its geographical and religious and ethnic limitations. And if the bearers of this message of the gospel have been entrusted to proclaim peace, to bring good tidings, to proclaim salvation, to say to Zion, your God reigns, then let us support the mission of the church, the mission of God, the mission of the gospel, not only with our prayers, but with our, pur- but with our purposes, purses, because it's a message of incomparable joy, incomparable significance, a message with which we have been entrusted. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring that message far and wide of good news. Beautiful feet. Let's thank God for those of his people who have beautiful feet entrusted with that message of good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the vision of this ancient prophet and how this has been fulfilled in Christ. We still do not yet see all things under his feet, but we do see your kingdom growing. We want to be part of your purpose. We want to be part of your growing kingdom. We want to be messengers of peace and joy in our generation. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your truth. And send us and send your your messengers forth with that joyful message to all corners of the world. Yes, and all corners of this parish. Amen.